Hi, and welcome to the Writers Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto. Today I'll be speaking with author Elizabeth Rush, who has just released a new book entitled Rising, Dispatches from the New American Shore. It's a deeply lyrical work of reportage, history, and creative nonfiction that explores the changing life of those living on America's coast from their own perspectives. Hey, Elizabeth, how's it going? Hi, David. It's so nice to have you here while you're in town. Thanks for having me. Of course. It's great to be here. Uh, the term climate change uh, is super volatile, especially yep. the politics surrounding it. And this book deals explicitly with effects from that uh, and, and communities that are dealing with that. I, I'm wondering, to start us off, how did you approach that term and talking to people? Great question. When I set out to write Rising, I came into the project thinking, you know, I want to write a book about sea level rise from different coastal communities all around the country that are being impacted by this phenomenon now in the present tense. Um, and I also knew that I know that a lot of sort of the historic discussions around environmentalism have been long sort of controlled by upper middle class white liberals. And so, you know, I say a flood doesn't know the difference between a Democrat and a Republican. A flood doesn't know the difference between, you know, a millionaire and the guy who repairs a millionaire's yacht. The reality is that that term climate change is not embraced by all of these different people who live on the front lines of, of sea level rise. So I would often go into my interviews and be very explicit about sort of leaving my discourse at the door and I'd ask people about their flood experience yeah. and um, their perceptions of how the environment has changed. And, you know, I was careful sometimes not to immediately jump into a conversation using words like climate change or sea level rise because I wanted people to tell me about their experiences, not, you know, I don't care if they use my language or not. Yeah. So I kind of, I left my language at the door often. That That's super useful. Uh, and I'm sure you got a lot of really honest responses based off of that, right? And goodwill, I'm sure, as well. Um, from Absolutely. Certain people. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Um, you talked a little bit about your, your goals for this book. Um, what led you to wanting to write this book in the first place? What was the initial interest? So I... I mean, there's there's the long version of that story, and then there's the really <laughs> long version of that story. But uh, I'll try to land somewhere in the middle. So I studied poetry as an undergrad and have always been um, really enchanted by environmental writing. And when I graduated from university, you know, I could say I knew I wanted to be an environmental writer, but I also I went to school out in Oregon. I also knew like half the state of Oregon probably wanted to do the same thing. Yeah. Um, so I ultimately made my way towards journalism and worked for many years in Southeast Asia and got sent to do a story on the India-Bangladesh border fence, which is the longest border fence in the world. And I was there for about a month and a half reporting on the fence and reporting on communities both on the Indian side of the fence and the Bangladeshi side of the fence. And one thing that really surprised me was in Bangladesh, a lot of farmers um, would tell me, you know, the fence wasn't really an issue, that they could bribe their way through, they could sneak through. The issue for them was that saline had arrived in the aquifer and was leading to widespread crop failure. And I think 
I knew then I could see it with my own eyes that climate change was very much with us in the present moment. And I came back to the United States and and I asked my editor if I could write like a longer piece on on sea level rise in Bangladesh. And he was like, well, we hired you to write a story on the border fence. So we need the story on the border fence. Mm. And I just became, I sort of saw this somehow, something opened in my mind that I was like, okay, this is a way for me to start to pivot back towards some of the initial things that I was so interested in when I studied writing as an undergrad. Um, And I just picked up, I would say, I made a very sharp turn um, and stopped really reporting on Southeast Asia. I also didn't want to keep flying there for work. It felt like a tremendous waste of energy both like mental, physical, but also like the fossil fuels burnt to send me back, send me back and forth to Asia multiple times a year. And so I started writing about sea level rise in the United States. And six years later, this yeah. book came out. You got a book out of it. Yeah. Um, that's such an interesting point that a lot of people don't think about. And I was kind of drawn to when reading the book is the issue of not only sea rise, but the the creeping salinity Um kind of takeover of soil that's not even on the coast, right? Yep. And people don't think about that. I could could you dive into that a little bit? Sure. So one thing that happens, there's so many different ways in which sea level rise manifests in our lives. And one thing that happens and it really depends on sort of like the porosity of soil um is that often, especially if you have an area where you have a freshwater Um, system, like a big river, like the Mississippi River, the Ganges River, and you see diversion of that freshwater um, for agricultural projects, you start to leave space in the aquifer. So the aquifer starts to drop because you don't have as much freshwater in the system as was, you know, historically sort of common. And as the aquifer drops and you get sea level rise, if you're in a flat area and, you know, most places that are deltaic are pretty flat, the sea le- the seawater can sort of start to creep in and take up the empty space left behind in the aquifer. Okay. Yeah. Does that make sense? That does. Okay. That's interesting. And kind of the description right there, um, you're really good in this book about deep diving. You, you don't dump things down in this book at all. <laughs> Um, you give exactly, but it's in a way that people can really relate to and see. And I know you have a background in poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you kind of balance like the deep kind of wonky technical things with the really kind of lyrical tone that you were setting? Uh, that that seems like such a challenge. So as a poet, you know, I was trained to read my work out loud and you know, read it out loud through all the different draft phases and to be sort of led by the sound of words as much as by the ideas sort of driving the progression of a poem. And so with Rising, you know, I read, I, I've probably read this book out loud, you know, uh, more than 200 times. And uh, I pay a lot of attention to when I get bored as a reader and as a listener. So when you're reading out loud, I think your threshold, um, your attention can dim more quickly. I don't exactly know why that is. But so often if I had a draft and I'm trying to figure out the weave of like wonky scientific stuff or wonky political stuff or wonky historical stuff, 
and more like intimate, personal, lived experience, I could get a sense as I was reading something out loud when I got bored. Like, oh, I'm on my fourth paragraph of like wonky (laughs) science in a row and I'm ready to yawn. So (laughs) I have to like link back or loop back to the lyrical or loop back to the personal. And so figuring out that weave was really like an exercise in reading out loud and listening. Yeah, uh, that's interesting. And you you mentioned the personal aspect, which I was not expecting when diving into this book, uh, and which I was really um, interested in and charmed by um, your kind of descriptions of of going back home, going Mm. back to Rhode Island and dealing with that. Um, When did you decide to insert yourself into this project? So once I did that kind of that pivot back towards Um, the environment as a beat that I was going to cover as a journalist. I wrote about sea level rise in a pretty straightforward way for like a year and a half. And I started to get bored with the stories that I was writing and felt like there were sort of limits to the kind of language that could make its way into the 24-hour news cycle around some of these issues. And at the same time, I was, um, as a reader, really diving into... Eula Biss and John Degada and Maggie Nelson. And these are all writers that write about um, historical, scientific, political topics, but they do it in a way that weaves the personal into the narrative. Um, they, you know, they write from a first person and they, I think, in very subtle ways show how they have skin in the game. And um, I found as a reader that I I could like read these like lyric essays. I'm thinking of John Degada's About a Mountain, which is like an investigation of the decision-making processes surrounding whether or not to put nuclear waste in Yucca Mountain with his summer living with his mom in Las Vegas with uh, the suicide of a young man named Levi um, from the tallest building in in Las Vegas that same summer. I read that book in like two and a half days. And I don't think that there is like a straightforward book on like nuclear waste and nuclear waste disposal that I would have ever read in two and a half days. But there was something about the way that he wove between all those different registers that made it um, something I like devoured. And I was like, I want to do that with climate change. I want to make it something that people... Can take in. Yeah, can take in and want to come back to and the language, that language engages you and enlivens you and feel and hopefully that a reader can sense, you know, there's the first person I in the book, but then every chapter opens with a testimony written entirely in the voice of someone in that community who's sort of telling their flood story. And those, I think, are just like really riveting and they keep us coming back. They keep our attention because they're personal. It's true. And, you know, I drew attention to your voice in there, but I do want to say for our listeners who maybe haven't read this book um, that the focus is on these people's experiences. Uh, You make sure to highlight that explicitly. Um, Also, talk about that and kind of were people comfortable with being the main focus in, in these chapters? Sure. So that was an interesting process in and of itself. So every chapter opens with one of these testimonies. They're the result of extensive interviews that I recorded um, with people in these communities. And, um, you know, thinking, thinking about that, who gets to be part of the environmental conversation and how can we make that conversation more democratic? 
I didn't want to just write about people. I wanted to sort of like hand the microphone over to them and have them join the conversation on their own terms. What that looks like behind the scenes is, you know, I would do often two, three, four interviews with a single person. I would transcribe them. And then I would, for anyone who's ever transcribed anything, you know how painstakingly slow that process is. Very much. (laughs) And and you get like these really long transcripts. So I would then take from that transcript, I would start to cut things. And I would often cut, you know, 90% of it and sometimes do a little bit of shuffling of the order in which sentences like arrive, arrived. And then I would send a copy to the person whose interview it was and ask for their feedback, ask yeah. if there are things that they didn't like, um, things they want me to cut, something they feel like I missed. And so it became this really collaborative process. Okay. Um, and And then towards the end, I mean, we had to get... Uh, legal permissions from everyone. So there there were multiple steps that I was pretty deliberate about because I wanted, if I was going to have other people's voices in this book, I wanted them to be happy yeah. with how their voice entered into the conversation. Yeah, and that you weren't manipulating them for like the overall narrative. Yep. Okay. Absolutely. And cool. then everyone, you know, I've been on this long extended book tour and I've seen a lot of the people again and it's just it's been also like an avenue to stay in touch with and watch these stories continue to unfold yeah that's really cool. I, I, I've talked to a lot of documentarians as well as, you know, nonfiction writers that, that get to check up on people still. And I think that's such a, a neat thing to have, to have built relationships with the folks that you're um, doing this story about and to see how that unfolds still. Absolutely. I think one of the highlights for me was this summer I got to um, sit down and have tea with Nicole Montalto, whose um, testimony appears in the book and is probably, for me the most deeply personal. She's talking about Hurricane Sandy um, and the search for her father after the storm. He ultimately, he he passed away during Sandy. And that, that trauma in her community and a lot of other sort of pre-existing structural inequalities sent the people in that community um, on a mission to get the state government to purchase and demolish their homes so that the residents might move away from risk, which I think is pretty progressive sea level rise adaptation strategy. Yeah. Um, anyways, I got to see her this summer and she had just had a baby who she named after her father. Yeah. And she lived, you know, three miles from her original home up on a hill. And she, uh, it was just wonderful to see that, in fact, she was able to move away from vulnerability, but also keep a lot of her community intact. So, you know, her sisters all live nearby. Her mom lives in the same building as she does. So there's, it was really important to me to see that story continue to unfold. That's really interesting. Um uh, one of the shores that you focus a lot of attention on in the book is uh, our very own Louisiana shore um, in a community there that is slowly, slowly disappearing, although faster than people would ever want it to. Uh, and I'm wondering if you could read a little bit out of that section about Louisiana. Sure. Just as like a side note, I 
recently asked my husband what his favorite part of the book is, and he says it's the Louisiana chapter. <laughs> we'll take it. Then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Small victories. <laughs> um, so this is from a chapter called Persimmons, and it takes place in the Isle de Jean Charles uh, here in Louisiana. Sometime during my first week on the Louisiana Bayou, I walked to the Isle de Jean Charles. The island road, built in the early 50s, right after the first oil rig went in, runs eight miles southwest from Poinichen, out between two expanses of water so new that neither has a name. Since the little remaining land is incredibly fat, flat, the sky's extravagant clouds serve as a kind of alternative to topography. Hoodoo-shaped cumulus formations hug the horizon where a storm is fixing to start. Snowy egrets dig in the few remaining bayou banks, and the mullet throw themselves out of the water as the first dime-sized droplets of rain fall. Less than halfway to the island, my gut confirms what I already know from my research. This is a world unto itself, coming undone. Just 50 years ago, the surrounding geography was complex and interconnected a network of lakes and marshes that were navigable and flat-bottomed boats called pirogues. If you didn't have a boat, you could walk between places by sticking to the higher ground abutting the arterial bayous. This word, bayou, sounds French, but it's actually Choctaw in origin. It means slow-moving stream. Today, it's used in a general sense to describe Louisiana's rare riparian coast, even though the bayous themselves are disappearing. The natural ridges and pathways that the Choctaw used to travel are going with them. Nearly every defining feature has been replaced by a single element, salt water. The loss is so pronounced that a few years ago, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration had to revamp the nearby Palenquemines Parish, and in so doing, removed 31 place names. Yellow Cotton Bay, English Bay, Cyprian Bay, Dry Cypress Bayou, and Bayou Long. None of these individual bodies of water exist anymore. The wetlands that once gave them shape have disintegrated making the bayous and bays indistinguishable from the surrounding ocean. Maybe you could swim, the owner of the Poinichen Marina tells me when I ask if I can get to the Isle de Jean Charles without a car. But I wouldn't, on account of the gators. Better just to take a right off Highway 665 and stick to the island road. Behind him stands a 15-foot-high statue of Jesus. The martyr's body is lank and lean, his arms outstretched towards the watery expanse. Next to the statue, a dry cypress tree, a dead cypress tree looms. Its empty branches mirror the man's sacrificial gesture. It too has passed beyond the barest version of itself into death, its roots soaked in salt. Thank you so much for sharing that. My um, pleasure. It's been yeah. a while since I read that passage. I can imagine. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. There was a forum recently here put on by a local reporter talking about uh, Louisiana's iconic boot no longer <laughs> being a boot. Yes. Um, and and it's, it's trailing itself. 
Um, and one of the things that you bring up in this book is among the communities that are affected, um, a population of them, sometimes you could even consider a large, are our native peoples. Yep. And I think that is erased a lot of the times. And I, I would wonder if you could talk about that for a little bit. Sure. So the place where I spent a lot of time, the Isle de Jean Charles, is um, inhabited by Biloxi, Chittimacha, Choctaw peoples. And, you know, that that the swampy, low-lying, farthest edge of the Louisiana coast is home to uh, tremendous indigenous populations is no um, coincidence. Many of these different groups fled colonial violence from different parts of the country and ended up, you know, living out in the middle of wetlands, in part because those wetlands are easier to defend and difficult to attack, and the land itself isn't very coveted. So these were sort of, they were just beyond sort of the bloody reach of the colonial project there on the edges of the, of what became the state of Louisiana. And, you know, they're there because they were vulnerable to begin with because of colonial violence. And so I think, you know, we often do erase that part of it, that that vulnerability is not arrived at by chance. And it's not an active choice that a lot of these people made. They live there because it was, you know, one of the safest places for them to be. And now Mother Nature is sort of pushing them back in the other direction. Yeah. And it kind of raises the question, a specter that's throughout the book is the idea of what does it mean to have a home and then be forced to leave it. And those people that are feel the impulse to stay there and how they're navigating that. And you uh, do a good job of kind of describing that conundrum. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so the the first, really the first chapter that I researched in the U.S. was the Louisiana chapter. And I arrived on the Isle de Jean Charles with this thinking that like, okay, when your house floods five times in five years, you leave. Like that makes rational sense. And, and I was just deeply surprised on that first reporting trip how personal all of these questions are and for... You know, one person, I'm thinking of uh, Albert Nanquin, the the chief of the Biloxi Chittimacha Choctaw tribe. He said to me, you know, I served in the military, and when I came back, my house flooded twice in the first two years after my return, and I was newly married. He's like, so I left. Like, that was it. The second flood, that was enough for me. And I think that was back in, like, the 70s or 80s, and yeah. he moved to Poinichen, which is really close to the island, but he moved in a little bit. And he's like, but, you know, that's a decision I had to arrive at myself. And everyone arrives at the decision to leave or to stay, you know, at different moments in their life through different personal personal sort of trajectories. So when I first went down to the island, it was probably 2012 or 2013. And I started to think of it as, you know, how do you stay in a place that's defined you even when that place is really changing its shape. And um, and then I stayed in touch with the folks on the island, and in particular, a guy named Chris Brunet. And I'll never forget, it must have been, well, I'm going to forget the date, but I'll never forget um, seeing, you know, above the fold in the New York Times, the headline, uh, the United States first climate refugees. Mm -hmm. And it was an aerial picture of the island. And 
Chief Albert had gotten, had solicited and won the National Disaster Resiliency Competition, and they got $48 million set aside to help islanders move in together as a group. So I called Chris and I said, you know, Chris, who was going to stay on the island as long as he could, I called him and I said, are you going? And he said, we're not celebrating, but we are going. And then I went back out to the island and, you know, who is that we? A lot of islanders are interested in this relocation project, but there are also a handful that don't want to leave. Yeah. And and I get that. Like, one of my favorite guys out there is this guy named Edison Dadar. And, you know, he his kids have moved away. He's got to be in his, like, late 60s. And he goes down and shrimps in the bayou behind his house with a cast net every day. And I asked him if he was leaving, and he was, I, I shouldn't say leaving, like relocating. They really are working on building an entirely new community and yeah. getting everyone from the island um, who wants to to live there together. Even folks who have left, you know, five, ten years ago are being invited yeah. to join the relocation project. Anyways, I asked Edison if he was going to join, and... He said, you know, what am I going to do inland? Just watch TV and get old quick. <laughs> and there's truth to that for Edison, you know, going out there fishing. That keeps him young. That keeps him alive and lively. And if he doesn't have the legacy need of having to pass down a home to his kids, because um, they have left the island and they have homes of their own, yeah. you know, yeah, stay stay until there's no more island. I don't have a problem with that. Yeah, that, that, that's interesting. And, uh, you know, a point that a lot of people don't think about, that that really personal uh, nature of that. Um, there was a movie that came out earlier this year called uh, First Reformed, um, mm. critically acclaimed. Uh, and one of the big plot points of the movie uh, not spoiling really anything, this happens early on, uh, deals with uh, a person's existential crisis concerning climate change, concerning mm. uh, things that are happening. And with the UN uh, report that came out recently, I I'm wondering how you navigate through that anxiety and that existential crises that arrive when covering something so dismal at times. So I have to laugh. So I was staying with a friend who lives in the Lower Ninth Ward, and last night after dinner, we were walking the levee, and, you know, it's dark and misty, and I asked, you know, do you ever, like, do you get the climate blues is the way I put it? <laughs> um, and he was like, I get the everything blues. Um, but he was like, and climate change is, you know, a big part of that. And he asked me if I get the climate blues. And, you know, I feel in some ways that I'm like too deeply steeped in this topic to, uh, it, it really has become my life. It's yeah. something I think about every single day. Um, and there are, I feel like a great sense I would say, of grief and of mourning. Like, I know that we are losing species. I know that a lot of sort of the intricate web of life that exists on this planet has been fractured and will continue to fracture. And there's, I think, a great sense of loss in that. But I also do draw hope from a couple of sort of strange places. I, I do think... I do think that all economic systems and political systems don't last. 
you know, we're all, they're always changing. And climate change as a phenomenon, I have seen it wake up people to pay attention to the more than human world and people that I would never think would be like, quote unquote, environmentalists. Yeah. Um, you know, when your house starts to flood, you start to pay attention to the river or the ocean that you live alongside. You start to pay attention to the comings and goings of different species. So I think in some ways, climate change is like realivening our awareness of the more than human world. Yeah. And I think it also has the potential to essentially, I think, you know, the strength of the moment that we live in is that there is a kind of rising collective awareness that vulnerable peoples, whether, you know, we're talking about women or people of color or people who flood, um, that vulnerability just isn't arrived at by chance. And so I think there is incredible potential for kind of coalition building and climate change as a catalyst towards coalition building amongst and between groups that um, haven't historically been taught to see the commonalities between them. Um, I find tremendous hope in that. And then also just when I do get down, because I do get down, I take really long bike rides. That's good. (laughs) Yeah. Like there's a lot of self-care, I think, that goes on behind the scenes when writing and a book-length work about climate change. Get that. Take a silver lining where you can and take a bike ride when you need it. Yeah, exactly. I like that. Exactly. well, uh, Elizabeth, um, our time is short. And I, I know an interview is going well when I have like 30 more questions <laughs> to ask you that have, uh, arise during the interview itself. But uh, but I'll leave you with one more. Okay. Um, do you still write poetry? And, and what are you reading right now? Mm, I wrote a very short haiku this summer in Point Reyes National Seashore when I was on a hike for self-care. Um, <laughs> but for the most part, I don't write poetry right now. Um, my husband is an academic and also a poet. Okay. And uh, we joke that once he gets tenure, he's like going back to the poetry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm really excited um, for him for that. I do feel like there's a lot of, um, there is a lot of poetry in this book. So I don't feel like at a loss, yeah. um, a poetic loss in my life. Last night, I was reading Denez Smith's Don't Call Us Dead. So good. Um, What else? I'm also reading a really fabulous kind of wonky book called Do Glaciers Listen? And it is in preparation in part for my next, like, professional undertaking. I'll go to Antarctica this year for a couple of months. Oh, wow. Um, and look at the Doomsday Glacier there, which is uh, the Thwaites Glacier. Only 28 people in the history of the world have ever been to this glacier. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So um, I'm trying to figure out essentially how to... Antarctica has almost no human history. People didn't spend any considerable amount of time there before really like 120 years ago. Yeah. And so I'm trying to figure out how to write about ice as an actor, as an agent, um, and not just a landscape. And so I'm reading this book, Do Glaciers Listen?, which is really about thinking about the agency of ice and looks at different indigenous myths 
that, I mean, essentially sort of say some of them, uh, and I'm thinking in particular, it's a book that takes place in a very particular corner of Alaska and Canada and the St. Elias Mountains. Um, but essentially, they're just a, a handful of different myths that essentially say, you know, when humans behave badly, the glaciers start to act erratically and they wipe out our villages or they wipe out our communities. Oh. And so, you know, I don't think that's necessarily wrong. Yeah. Um, and so really trying to figure out how do you aliven the sort of reciprocal relationship between these landscape forms and human behavior. It's a neat blueprint for that. That's interesting. That, that's, <laughs> that's more literal uh, than I would like it to be, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But exactly, it's like literal and metaphoric. It's fascinating. So okay. that's those are the two things I'm reading. Very different, well, but engaging. Interesting. Uh, well, Elizabeth, this has been great speaking with you. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was author Elizabeth Rush, whose new book is entitled Rising, Dispatches from the New American Shore.